What's up, everyone? Welcome to the Pinnacle Performance Podcast. Uh, today, with this episode, I'm trying something new. I'm not really doing an introduction live. I'm pre-recording it because I just want to get straight into it. I don't think people care about listening to an introduction that much. So in the future, I think I'm just going to straight up go right into the conversation because I think about it, if I was listening to a podcast, I would not want to listen to uh, a long introduction like this one right now. <laughs> so uh, this will be the last time I talk this long before it starts, but just in the future, we're gonna get straight into it. No BS, we're just gonna roll. So hope you guys enjoy it. Uh, first of all, thank you for uh, having me on. And this is, gosh, I mean like 31st year in the profession. I started in 1989. Uh, my degree was phys ed, so I started out in phys ed for a couple of years. And I, but while I was doing phys ed, I was also the head, I was coaching uh, uh, basketball, football, track, and I was kind of like the de facto strength coach for the school. I worked with any athletes that needed stuff. Um, and then I, in, in 1991, I ended up going to uh, do my master's at the United States Sports Academy in Alabama. And from there, I ended up getting into strength and conditioning. I went to uh, in 91, I went to Bulletary's Tennis Academy, which was, uh, uh, now it's called IMG, but back then it was before IMG bought it. And so I used to, you know, strength and conditioning speed with the tennis athletes and uh, traveled with them. And I went to another tennis academy another year later. I worked a little bit with the University of Kentucky tennis program. And, uh, and, then, and then I started opening up facilities. And, you know, 1994 was the first facility. And uh, so that's just kind of where it's gone. And it's led myself into more like camps and consulting. I do a lot of consulting now. And uh, yeah, that's kind of how it's all happened. So it's been fun. It's been a great, uh, great ride. And it's just started. <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah, I love that. I love that. It's a, I mean, you've obviously been around for a very, very long time and you've gotten some great results with people. So, I mean, I think that's, it seems to be the natural progression of, you know, you start off and then you eventually go towards more consulting as your career progresses and as you, you know have things to show for your work. So I'm just kind of curious, how's your model, how's your viewpoint kind of evolved since 1994? Like what are things you might place more importance on now and maybe less so on others? Yeah, uh, the one area that changed a lot is how I coached. What helped me was what I think gave me an advantage coming out is I was a phys ed teacher. So, you know, what is that? That's learning how to teach, right? So that's what we do as coaches or therapists or whatever it is. You learn how to give information or not give too much information. Well, as a young coach, I gave too much information because I was excited and I wanted to, I wanted to solve problems with my mouth and, and give all the information I could. Now, so as I've progressed, I've learned when I do talk to be more powerful with what I say, more impactful, and then sit back and let it unfold. That's, it took, and it takes patience. It takes, it takes courage to do that because sometimes I know when I've had my speed academies, my interns and my assistants would say like, they're like, coach, why didn't you correct that? I'm like, well, because it, it, I can't fix it. Time has to fix it. It's like the three-year-old, four-year-old learning to ride a bike, right? There's nothing I can say, you know, now I just like, just keep going. You'll get it. Your brain has to take over. Your, your system has to adapt. And so I learned a lot about that. Some of the other things that I think really made a, uh, you know, made kind of a, a change in, in, in not, not being so, um, 
um, rehearsed in the drills that I choose to fix problems. And what I mean by that is when, when you know, we work with athletes, right? What do athletes do? They compete. And what, are the, what is competition? It's, it's, uh, it's adapting on each play, on each point, on each, you know, situation. So training has to have a little bit in that if we're trying to improve the essence of speed because there has to be context. Well, early on, I didn't understand that. I just knew that, well, geez, if I got them really good at a 5-10-5 or a W drill or a T drill, and I could, I could really improve them, but I'm like, gosh, they don't seem to be moving any better on their weekend soccer tournament or they're, you know, they kind of seem a little stronger, but they're not doing what I want. And then when I started to go more towards reactive type training early in the workout and then backfill it with correctives, that's when it real. that's called my reactive tier system. That's how that developed over time. But that's where I really started to make a change and understand, gosh, I got to allow them to understand why this movement is important. And that's when context comes in. And then they're kind of like, well, okay, now I know why I have to plant wider or keep my hips level and not pop up and down. Because if they only get good at the drill, that's not good enough to get them to be able to transfer that to sport. And it's, I know it's hard to say what transfers and what doesn't, but a lot of it to me is context. That's what helps it transfer. I love that. That leads me in perfectly to the question I really wanted to ask you about. And that's, uh, I've been talking to some people, well, at least I think they're amazing speed coaches. And uh, a lot of them say that, you know, they'll watch, a, I don't know, some high level athletes or just, you know, some high level college athletes do cuts or, or some sort of change of direction. And then it's like, you look at them and they're like, hey, that's technically, that's not very sound. Uh, and, you know, how much are we leaving on the table by not addressing these things? And I guess with what you just said, that's also a huge aspect. It's a huge piece of the puzzle of it. So at what point is it, especially if you have someone who's, you know, a decent athlete, you know, how much of this tug of war is there? Like, what's your progression of we need to break this down, make it much more, you know, technical at first? but then progress it towards more of that perceptual act, like that perception action coupling. Yeah. So I am very big on the corrective portion. So if you were to, you know, go down the middle on my left side is going to be the reactive stuff. So Connor, if I were, if you were my athlete, I'm going to put you in either a tier one, tier two, or a tier three drill, probably a tier one or tier two, which just simply means it's a reaction drill. That's all it is. I'm gonna have you do that. That's my evaluation. That's my assessment. I'm gonna say, oh, okay. Every time he goes to the left, he likes to do this, but when he goes to the right, he gets stuck. So now I'm gonna go right to the correctives. I'll go, the correctives are the rehearsed drills. Okay, that, I just call them corrective. So now I'm gonna put time in. So I might do a, I might do a, a shuttle run, a short shuttle run and allow you to plant on that right leg multiple times so that I can get a good grasp of what I'm seeing. And now there's, there's levels, right? So when we see a movement, the movement can exist in the sport. So they're playing football that there's their movement in the sport. I can take it a step lower and put it in my training facility and say, okay, there's that movement, but I'm going to make it reactive. It's more controlled because it's not out in the football field. It's in my facility, but it's still reactive then I can take it down another level. And that's where we start to get into the correctives. I can say, okay, 
I'm going to dictate it a little bit more. I'm still going to let them do the whole scale. He's still going to run to his right, cut off his right leg, and come back to the left. So he's still doing the same thing he did on the football tour, but now it's much more controlled. And I might put a band around you. So the band is going to give you some feedback. So I can override how your system normally managing it, but now you've got a band on you and like, whoa, okay, if I go, if I, if I don't bend my knees, this band's gonna pull me too far. So now I get an adjustment. And if I have to go to the fourth level, now it would be, okay, it still might look like that cut, but it's much different. So it literally might be me putting you on a little bit of a low box, maybe a, you know, an Olympic plate that's, you know, two inches high, three inches high. And I might have you shuffle across it, plant, stick, boom, and then come back. Now it's very controlled. There's still some element of that football game cut, but it's really regressed. And then if I say, okay, this just isn't happening. Now I might say, you know what, we're going to do some breathing. We're going to get maybe a chop pattern, maybe a, a, a half kneeling press. And I'm going to teach you how to get some energy and tension in this spot so that you're better prepared for it. But I don't go there unless I have to. And I know most people will start there. My thing is, how do I know? I want to see you move because sometimes the correction is in you. I just haven't tapped into it yet by doing, a, you know, just chipping away at it, kind of like peeling the layers away. Yeah. So that's why I do it that way because that's, and I'm not saying my way's right. It's right for me because I have really good eyes. Like I see things well, so I can usually make corrections that way as where other people are good on the table first. And then they say, okay, I know you're going to do this because you can't do this on the table. I'm the other way. I'm, I'm more movement specific. Yeah. You like to meet them where they're at kind of. Yeah. I like that. I think that's why it's important to have a hierarchy too, right? Of things that you know are progressions and regressions. Because at that point, if you don't have it, you're just going to have to guess and figure some out on the spot. That's why I think it's very, very valuable to have that. It's like a hierarchy of that allows you to have just less guessing, more executing. That's fantastic. Exactly. Um, so something I struggle with personally when doing speed stuff is I struggle to know when, because I've read so many perception action books like nonlinear pedagogy, all that stuff. And you just get to the point where it's like, all right, this information makes sense, but how do we actually apply it? How do we begin to progress these things? Cause there's so many variables. You can manipulate the task, uh, you can, like the environment and the individual, right? So what's your thought process in creating a progression within that scheme? Like what's, what's kind of, what are you looking for first? And then where are you going to end up? Yeah. Yeah. That's, and that's the, that's the art of it, right? That's the art of it. We're trying to, we're trying to seek out the science, but still, it's like, okay, well, it looks good on the chalkboard, right? When I write it up, it looks, it looks that place should be a touchdown, right? If I execute it, but then we go and execute it, it's like, okay, that didn't work. So it's really about watching the athlete move. So I know when I watch an athlete move, because I have models in my head of what movement should look like. So I have a sprint model, an acceleration model, a change of direction, a lateral retreating jump. I have those models. So when I watch an athlete move, my, my you know, inner dialogue is always, okay, how much bandwidth am I gonna give them? Like, is, are they, they, are they're, they're still in the model, but if they go a little bit further, okay, now they're out of my model. And, and that takes time. I think, Connor, one of the biggest problems that we have as a profession is we want answers now. Yeah. See, when I grew up, 
because I didn't have YouTube, didn't have internet, you know, in the 80s, everything was like, go to the library, go to the index card, pull it out, go down the aisle, find the book, and, and then spend a couple of weeks reading the book and figure it out and go try it. So a month later, we're like, okay, we got now I, you know, you and I could jump on YouTube right now, probably five, five drills, exactly what we're talking about, right? So because I didn't have that, I learned to be patient and say, I know I'm going to fix this eventually, or I hope to, but I'm just going to be patient. And, and so my, my hierarchy, my model lets me, lets me decide, okay, this athlete's way off. Like they're not even close. They're running and they're doing this and we're trying to sprint and they're causing, and because they're doing this, now we're getting heel whips outside because if this does this, well, the lower body's got to react to that, right? So now I can say, all right, I'm going to skip every re reactive thing I would normally do. We're going to go to marching. We're going to do in-place marching, and we're going to even hold those and then go to the other one. And we're going to see what's going on when they start doing simple in-place marching, and then we're going to build from there. And then we'll go to A skips and then A runs. Those are very elementary. Now, the next day, I might have another athlete that I go completely reactive with them. So in my system, if I'm working one-on-one -on -one or two-on-one, -on -one, something like that, it's very individual where I go with them. If I'm working with teams, that's when I take my models and I say, okay, in a, in a particular pattern, let's say sprinting, they all should be able to do these three things, like good arm action, good front side mechanics, good strong posting into the ground when they run. Well, I can make everybody work on that, even if they're already good on it, because that's like telling Steph Curry to keep shooting foul shots, right? Well, he's already 90 3%. Well, but he, he's that because he keeps practicing. Well, I do that with athletes that are already good. I'm like, let's keep chipping the paint off. Let's not let this thing get crusty on you. We got to keep doing it. So, so that's kind of how I do it. I hope that answers it because it's one of those questions where like, I, I'm really one of those people that I look at things and I'm like, okay, that's where I'm going with this guy and this girl. Huh? I'm going another way with her. So that's kind of how I do it. I understand what you mean. Yeah. I think it's, there is no, you know, black and white answer to that question because yeah. there are so many variables at play. Um, exactly. What are some drills that you really like for that? Is, is there anything that's specific, like specific that comes to your mind? Like, let's say you have someone you want to, uh, they've got like decent cutting mechanics, right? Now, how are you going to create a drill or an environment that's going to allow that to happen reactively? Yeah, yeah. So. There's, there's two to three ways that I will usually plug them in. Number one is coach-led. So I'm in front of you. I'm going to boom. I'm going to point. I'm going to maybe call a color, go to, you know, red cone, blue cone, something like that. That's going to be reactive. But that's not a lot of sports, right? Tennis isn't a color or a command. It's a vision. Basketball, it's a vision. Football, it's a vision. So I'm going to see those things. Now there's elements of tennis if we're playing doubles where it now becomes a little bit different where you have commands that are called while you're playing or volleyball uses commands sometimes. So um, I, I, I either will do that or I'll go athlete-led. And when it's athlete-led, so you and I are partners, what I love about athlete-led is, the, is the, me who's chasing you and I'm reacting to you I get to evaluate very quickly, which we call reading. That's the first and most important that any athlete can learn is to read the situation, read the environment, 
read the task. If I read quickly that you're really fast and I only, and I have like 10 meters to 15 meters of boundaries and I have to be able to get there and cut you off, that's gonna tell me I either can take a very narrow angle because I'm faster than you, or if I'm not, I have to take a wide angle to kind of mm. cut off your speed. I can't give that to an athlete if I lead it all the time. I have to have them against somebody so they learn and then I can teach them from that. I can say, well, the reason you had a hard time with that cut is because your angle was wrong, your pursuit angle. And there's the difference when you have uh, like a lighting system, people like to use lights and those are good. They're good visual, you see them and you go, but the light never changes distance, it never changes speed, it never takes a different angle. But that's how athletes learn to cut off a ball, cut off an opponent, get to a wide forehand, a tipped ball in volleyball that should have gone down the line. Now it got tipped and goes to the middle. I only get good at that by putting them in situations where they have to read. And then the other way is implements. So I'll take like a ball. So I might have a ball in each hand, boom, and I'll, I'll toss a ball. So now they are reading me, but they're reading where did I throw that ball in relation to them but not only in relation to them, they understand how much speed they have and how high I tossed it. So what kind of bounce they're going to get. Mm. So all of a sudden they read, they plan, they act. And that's the goal of reactive training. We got to get them in those situations. Organized chaos. Yes. I like exactly. it. Exactly. Yep. Something I've been, um, and this is going to be me thinking out loud a little bit that I've been thinking about more and more, I've been digging into a little bit of research on it, is this idea of how much stiffness does an individual need in their trunk when they're going to, let's say, change direction to a cut? Because there's some good studies that show that the less stiffness, quote unquote, they have in their trunk, then the more nimble they are, the more able they are to come back out of a cut because they're able to eccentrically absorb that force. But so much of what we do in the weight room is so anti this, anti that. But is that really the best way to go? Because your trunk creates movement. Every time you take a step, your obliques need to rotate your trunk. So at, at, at what point is this anti-everything movement becoming detrimental? I totally understand how that's a necessary part of what we're doing in the weight room. But we're kind of forgetting the other end a little bit, at least in my opinion, based off of my limited kind of like knowledge of this subject. Yeah. What are your thoughts as like an expert? First of all, that's very astute. That's a great comment and that's great research. And I just was, I would say, two, maybe two weeks ago on a, uh, on a Zoom call. It was just a one-on-one -on -one call with a, uh, uh, a person out of a PhD out of Australia. And we had that very conversation. Um, very Matter of fact, uh, her name is Sophia Nymphius and she's phenomenal. You know Sophia, yep, phenomenal. She does some really good stuff and she showed me a video of a player that when she went, so these are her, her, we could say these are her ASIS, right? She's coming at us, she went to make a cut, boom, she dropped and then went in that direction. And she said she's one of her best athletes and we noticed that she does that a lot. So, and, and my thing is stiffness works when stiffness works. Mm -hmm. And so if I have to make an extremely quick reactive cut, like pop, pop, you know what I mean? Like maybe I'm coming at you and I start a boom and then I go. Mm -hmm. Okay, I can't have too much lag time or play time just because it slows the movement down. That's, that's the reason. 
But if I'm making a, let's say I'm doing a, uh, you know, maybe a, a speed cut where I'm running pretty good, but I might go 15 degrees, something like that. You might see more like you had talked about that nimbleness. So they called it, they call it like gimbal, you know, the gimbal of the pelvis. And there may be more dropping because when it drops, it loads, right? It loads the opposite side. Mm -hmm. um, Gary Gray, I'm a, I'm a gift uh, fellow. I went through that program, you know, almost 10 years ago. And that was one that Gary is very big on is like, movement like we gain tension when there's movement and we we we've got to get to the point of stiffness so sometimes if we're too stiff too soon we lose that now where we do have to look at it is like and this is where my concept of these fake throw things that i would do is all i'm trying to do is create tension at a point so that when i want to change direction parts of my body don't keep going the other direction. So if I'm sliding this way and I want to plant to go back this way, I don't plant, push off, but yet my shoulders just keep going this way. There's where I'm going to need some, um, like I just call it tension. I'm getting pressure inside my stomach and my muscles and that's what stops my movement to go. But I'm with you. I, and again, I don't have the answers on that, but I do believe there has to be some loading phase to that. Yeah, yeah, that's I'm, I'm glad you said that. And there's the whole we go into like the guts and the pelvic floor and all that stuff. And that's like a whole nother thing. But I think it's, it's interesting thinking about the role of, of that eccentric absorption and, and how in the weight room, that's not necessarily always what's going on, right? That's not what it's always more force, you know, more weight, more of this, right? So that leads me into another question I have for you. So within the weight room, there's also some coaches I've talked to, and I don't know where I quite, quite where on the spectrum of this I lie, but they'll say the more past a certain point, I'm not even talking about strength, I'm just talking about time accumulated in the weight room, the worse people's biomechanics tend to be in terms of, let's say you have athlete A, athlete B. Athlete A has minimal time in the weight room, but you know, still goes in there and gets their, their job done. Athlete B loves the weight room. They live in it. They live for it. But athlete B, on average, it seems like, according to the, the coaches I talk to, at least, that athlete has a higher tendency to just have worse biomechanics. So do you think, like, what's your role of the weight room and how it relates to the things that you prioritize? Yeah. Yeah, I'm a, I'm, uh, I try to be very minimal in the weight room. I, I'm big on the weight room. I'm big on its, its ability. I love lift. My kids lift. Um, I do. I'm, all my athletes. But... I, I think so much of that comes down to the individual too, because genetically there are some athletes that can, they can work out for 90 minutes and they're great. Other athletes, they work out for 25 minutes and they're gone, they're, they're, they're done, right? <clears throat> the problem that we run into in, in talking to guys like, you know, Dan Path and listening to some other guys that have been in it for 45 years that have just seen it come around, they've seen the cycle many times, they're like, there's that point where when we disturb the, the coordinative movement and the freedom of biomechanics and of, of running or jumping or swinging or throwing, because we've created an atmosphere where stiffness has to be at a high. Mm -hmm. So when we lift a lot, and I mean a lot of weight, right? We lift a lot, like a lot of time in, we lift a lot of weight. Your, your body's 
starts to create stiffness because that's how it's protecting the joint, right? It gets tight. Like if you, you ever work with a power lifter, you know, they got about that much, you know, rotation. Well, that's why they can bench press 680 pounds, right? Exactly. That's where I've got all the range of motion I want. That's why I, I bench press 80 pounds, right? So it's, <laughs> it's, uh, so, but what happens is when we gain all that strength and we gain stiffness to help that strength, we lose it on the other end when we need that speed and that, that elastic component and that ability to have the co-contraction shut off. I don't want co-contraction when I'm trying to pull a limb through at so many meters per second and then, and then stop it, have the other set of muscles, the re, you know, my reciprocal boom, and then I have to pull the leg back down. So that's where we have to be careful. That's where I think we have to be careful with strength. And I'm always the type where I never want to sacrifice my, my speed for strength. You know, because at the end of the day, I've worked with, and I, I catch heck for this sometimes for saying this, but I've worked with some athletes over the years that were incredibly fast, incredibly quick, just lightning. Genetically, they were really, really good, and they, they've improved through the training, but they were really, really good, but they weren't real strong. They, they, you know, I put them in the weight room. I mean, they were strong on the basketball court. They were basketball players. They were, like, strong. They could bump put them in the weight room and they're, they're not real, real strong. Not that they're not bad lifters, but they're just not real strong. So I think there's something to it. I just don't know. I don't have the answer, but I kind of have an idea where I go with it. And I, I make pretty good judgment calls. I'm always big on, I'd rather err on the side of caution, mm. keep them athletic than to dominate it with the weight room. The weight room has got to help me, not hurt me. Yeah. Yeah. The, the genetics thing's huge. And I've worked with, I don't know, like a, a handful of high-level uh, basketball players, a couple NBA guys, and I'm just amazed every time when I see them. And, you know, I, I love the story of one guy in particular, uh, former all-star, could not do five bodyweight pull-ups. Like, he couldn't even do it. And he was doing uh, split squats with 20s in each hand, and it was like, wow, for him. But you, this guy takes his shirt off. He looks like a bodybuilder. He looks incredible. So it's hard to not – think like, man, how much of this is just genetic? You know what I mean? Like how much of this can we really make a significant impact on? Not, I'm saying, I'm not saying, of course we can make a great impact, but in your opinion, and you work with so many athletes, how much of an impact can we take an athlete that is, I mean, obviously a training age matters, but just like generally speaking, how much can you take someone that's not a genetic superhuman and how much improvement can we make? How much is that genetic factor a limit? Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I've had really good results because I've worked with so many younger athletes as well as high level so I can compare. Because uh, if they're a high level athlete, usually there's a genetic component tagged with it. As with the younger athletes, we don't always know. Sometimes we think they're going to be good, but then they end up not when they mature a little bit. But I really believe if, if you're very strategic about attacking, increasing, uh, smoothness of the central nervous system and how you fire and how the how the biomechanics tied into rate coding and everything that we can possibly do get them i think we can improve athletes a lot because we can make them more efficient and the the, the cool thing is connor is if you're asking me that question for the 100 meter dash mm. versus volleyball i can give you two different answers because I can say, I can make an athlete that's not very gifted, 
move really well for volleyball because I just have to make them efficient. I got to put them in positions where they can load and explode and cover ground and do their job to make sure the volleyball doesn't touch the ground, right? That's their job. Don't let the volleyball touch the ground. But I put them on a track and I try to get them to run. Maybe it's a, you know, a young lady and I try to get her, you know, to be competitive. She has to run a, I don't know, maybe a 12-4 in high school, which is pretty quick. And she's like a 14-9 or, a, you know, something like that. I don't know. That's, that's a challenge. That's pretty hard. Now, I can improve her. I can make her better. But in volleyball, I can make her a lot better just because my environment's different. My task is different. And the, the demands at such high speeds and the coordination over long periods of time is different. So, so it just depends, right? It's, it's kind of cool to think about. And then if I put that person as a soccer player, it's a little bit of sprinting, but quite a bit. And it's a little bit of volleyball because you got some short, tight movements. So there's where you challenge yourself. Can I make them better there? You know, and then it comes back to, again, you know, what is their genetic potential? Sure, sure. In terms of, um, in terms of injuries, and I'm sure there's a genetic component to this as well, what are some, some red flags? And I know as an industry, the thing we're probably the worst at is being able to predict injuries. There's just so many factors that go into it. Like it's impossible, yeah. right? As far as we're aware. But what are some things that you see with mechanics that it's like, it's a red flag for you? Maybe not even for injuries, just for like when you assess someone, you're like, that is something I want to address right away. Yeah, yeah. A lot of athletes that come uh, you know, to me and if I do an assessment, whether it's on a table or walking, I do a lot of gain analysis, stuff like that is so many of them are stuck uh, with a, you know, like an anterior roll of the pelvis. So then we start looking above and below and there's just a lot of things going on that create stress all the time, right? They're, they're, they're stressed just standing there because they're locked up so much in the lumbar and then they're probably internally rotated and stuck. And if they're, you know, if we're, talking, you know, kind of the concepts of rotation. They could be, you know, the left side versus right, but then it affects the foot and then that could affect leg length and then the foot drops on one side to, to help compensate. So we got all those things. Now, if we can, if we can understand it a little bit and just say, okay, and again, when I did an internship, I would say uh, probably 99 or 2000, something like that. I did an internship out in, uh, uh, San Diego. It was like 11 days. And it was just, he, this guy who was doing it was very big on Yanda, right? Um, Yanda's techniques. He's like, Hey, look at, if they're, if they're tight here and they're tight here and they're weak here and they're weak here, fix those. Just, you know, don't get fancy, fix those. Whatever techniques work to get you loosened up and have, let's get some bounce. But now as soon as it's kind of like a chiropractor or a therapist makes an adjustment, well, fix them right then because the central nervous system is ready to be fixed. So if we can adjust these things and fix them, and then we can, we can have a, 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 you know, a body that's more, a little bit more resilient. It has the ability to move freer. Um, so we're going to see things like that. I don't like to see that. I don't obviously the rounded shoulders because, and I worked with, um, uh, I worked quite a bit with a major league baseball team and, and there was a, one particular player who's extremely quick, always has trouble, always has, you know, some issues going on uh, with his legs, sometimes with a groin or whatever. Well, 
when he runs, he crosses a lot, okay? The arm crosses. Well, at those high speeds, the leg is going to counteract that because if it didn't, he would, he would rotate sideways, right? So they counteract. So we literally did some stuff just simply to help him feel like the arm can track in a pathway that's better. So it strokes forward and back versus internal and then external and back. And that's what we were seeing. So we, we fixed that and he felt better immediately. Now he's got to keep doing it, right? You can make the fix, the correction right off. And they're like, wow, this is awesome. I'm like, well, yeah, it's just starting though. Now you got to keep doing it, right? So definitely arm action, definitely that pelvic tilt type thing. I think, I think if you see athletes in, in my world of really assessing a lot of multi-directional movements, cutting short, quick movements, I'm a big fan of making sure they have adequate dorsiflexion because if they can't get into dorsiflexion, they, they, they compensate by overflexing at the hip because they're trying to get lower where they could have gotten it just if that knee shifted forward a little bit to load and pronate properly and then go from there. So when I get athletes that don't have that, I work a lot on that dorsiflexion alone just to get them because then everything else up the chain can do a better job. Yeah, I think it's interesting, like thinking about how adaptable human beings are, right? Right, like especially as sprinters, like you see anterior pelvic tilt everywhere. And it's just the body. I mean, that's how they create their power, right? That's extension. That's athleticism. But if they're stuck there and they're living on their toes, then maybe we need to think about throwing some variability. And I, and I love that because, you know, they're, they're almost kind of like in a mini sprinter's posture all day, if you think about it that way, which is, I don't know, I, I think it's kind of cool. Um, real quick, I wanted to ask you about what are some things that you feel uh, in, in this year of 2020 are things that you feel like in, in the sprinting industry, the, the speed development industry, what are some common myths, quote unquote, that you see that potentially uh, the average coach could benefit from if they kind of change their perspective a little bit? Yeah, myths on sprinting or any kind of speed? Any kind of speed. Any kind of speed, yeah. Well, the one that I've, I've literally fought my whole career and um, took a lot of ridicule early in my, you know, in the years is when I talked about this concept of repositioning. And repositioning, for the listeners who don't understand what that means, it's like when an athlete is waiting for something to happen and all of a sudden it happens and then their feet kind of move in a direction opposite of where they want to travel. So that was always called like a fault step mm -hmm. or, um, you know, a, a, a negative movement to where they wanted to go. So just to kind of give you a little, this is kind of a cool story. When I was in college, I was a college basketball player. And my, my, this was in the mid eighties and my coach made me watch film. So I used to watch film and I, I got enamored with speed back then. I was always quick. And so, you know, if I was big and strong, I would have been probably more enamored with the weight room, right? Well, I was quick, so I liked speed. So I started watching myself defend. And I'm like, gosh, every time my coach yells at us for taking a false step, I'm like, well, I, I just did it like six times in about three seconds because every time that my opponent moved, I, I moved my feet and it pushed me. And then I started watching other people. And then kind of I started to uh, uh, look at other athletes in other sports. And then when I was able to do it, I started to look at old time athletes. Okay, back, people didn't have guys like us, right? They just were athletes, like Gail Sayers, people back in the 50s and 60s. And I'm thinking, 
they're doing exactly what my coach is telling me not to do. And that's well before they were even born, right? And yeah. then when I became a phys ed teacher, I started to watch my, you know, my second and third graders. I'm like, well, they're doing it too. So it, I started to piece things together over years. And I'm thinking, okay, there's clues being dropped. I just got to figure them out. And so what I started to realize was every time somebody makes a movement, like they make an athletic movement, it's usually task driven, right? There's something, I'm chasing a ball or whatever and, in my environment, but it, it's, it's the sympathetic nervous system giving me that heightened awareness and my fight or flight kicks in and the fight or flight is designed to help me protect myself. But for athletics, I'm not necessarily afraid for my life, but I'm still protecting my space. I'm protecting my end zone or my basket or my goal. And so you just naturally see and you react. Well, when a foot repositions, it's creating, like we talked about stiffness, you get immediate impulse, higher impulse, you get um, um, a stretch shortening cycle, and you get a straighter joint angle. I'm fast, that's why sprinters are faster than defensive shufflers in basketball, right? Because they're up tall, they really can strike the ground fast and they can go. So when I hear coaches scream over their you know, players all the time, stop stepping back, stop stepping back, or the directional step when they go to the right. So if I'm going to the right and I'm base dealing, they'll say, stay planted, push, and then cross over. But that's never what happens. What happens is we push, we open, and then we can push. I call it pop, push, open, push. Yeah. So those things I still see. Now, I've had information and articles and blogs and video products out for years on this stuff. And people still argue with me. But yet I watch their athletes move and their athletes do it naturally. And that's my, that's what, I, I, you know, I don't have any hair now, but I want to pull my hair out. and I want to say, watch your athletes. Why do you, do you think your athletes are trying to disobey you? Like when you keep saying, don't step back and they keep doing, you think they're just being belligerent and they're not listening? No, that's, if you want them to be fast, let them go. Correct the other step. I always say, take out the garbage after they move. So like the garbage is this stuff, arms all over the place or head dropping, but the reactive stuff, that's, that's there. You know, that was put in us to protect us. That's, you said so many good things there. Um, I think the, the most, the thing I really uh, attached to there was the idea of letting things happen naturally. Like I think the body knows best a lot of times, but how often do we try to like put someone into like this, you know, speed development system or like a, I don't know, like this rigid structure. It's like, you, I'm sure you saw this, the, the Bleacher Report article about hands on the knees versus hands on the head. It's like, why are we trying to change what we want to do? You know, like, <laughs> it's like we're trying to tell the body it's wrong, but it's, we've been doing this for thousands and thousands of years as human beings. So it's, I think it's interesting um, thinking about the self-organization of technique versus like this rigid, like needs to be like this across, you know, all boundaries, across everyone. And I guess that's that idea of attractors and fluctuators, right? Um, yep. So how the, I guess that is a good question. How much individuality, given this um, sort of natural self-organizing process that we go into, like, do you have certain attractors and, and fluctuators? Uh, for the audience, an attractor is something you want. Stable, a fluctuator is going to vary depending on the individual and the task and environment, all that good stuff. So do you have those things kind of thought out in your head when it comes to speed? 
Yeah, yeah, I do. And it's, and it's kind of like, um, let me, let's see, let me give you an example. Let's take something that everybody can visualize really easy. Let's take a base stealer. Okay, so there, I actually showed a video on this long, probably several months ago, but it was two of the best base stealers of all time. Okay, Ricky Henderson, who broke the record, and then you had Lou Brock. Lou Brock was a guy, I saw him play in Yankee Stadium in like 1976. He's Minnesota, he's one of the best guys on the base. Totally, totally different technique. One that I would never teach, but you know, he was one of the best, right? So my thing is, we do understand how if I pull a, a, a lever or I pull an arm or a leg through at a certain length, it'll be faster or slower, right? So if I bend my arm like this and I go really fast, I'm pretty fast, but if I straighten it out, I'm fairly slow with it, right? So we know that. So if I'm gonna take that base deal and I'm gonna turn and run, if I can get every baseball player to do certain things like hand position at the start. I don't like their hands dangling long because it's now a longer lever that they have to deal or a longer moment or whatever you want to call it that they have to deal with. That's where I need them to get to a position quickly so then they can have a nice long backstroke and that length of the backstroke now allows me to produce more force into the ground with the leg that's going to push. So in that case, it'd be my right leg because I'll, I'll push open. Now the right leg is going to push hard. That's the track athlete, right? Coming out of the blocks, but that's the same thing. So those are things that attractors, I, I have to see, or I have to see close, right? It's got to be, they can have some variation to it, a little bit of fluctuation, but they have to, they have to be pretty close because science, laws of whom, you know, changing inertia, action, reaction forces, acceleration of the three laws, Newton's laws of motion. We have to be close to those. Otherwise, otherwise two things happen. We're, we're, it, it's very difficult to uh, correct them and make appropriate corrections if they're so flawed in the pattern. Because if for me to correct it, well, it's like, I don't want to correct instead have them stick with the flawed pattern i have to completely change it and that's a lot of times not what they want right and then the other thing is is you know we got to be careful of like you talked about a few or you asked a few questions ago is if we're mechanically flawed there's there's potential for acute or chronic injury so we want to protect them there so i do have things and that falls into my models right the models of movement these are how i've watched athletes move the best over all these years and so if i can get them close to those i can correct them easier and i can get more efficient patterning right and that's really and my cueing is easier if i'm if i have them in a system that's good but then you have to allow them to be them you can't change them completely Absolutely. Absolutely. Do you feel that the crossover step has any value uh, in, in a given context? Do you ever use that? No, I would never teach it. But if it happens, it happens. Mm -hmm. and, and here's the here's if I can go into this for a second. Please do. Please do. Yeah. Okay. Let me let me die because it's one of those things where kind of like you talk about it and people are like okay i don't know what you mean so i got to go into it a little bit absolutely so so this was one of those things years ago okay in the in the late 80s early 90s i really dove into because i kept watching and everybody kept saying 
this crossover, and this is how you want to do it. And I'm thinking, well, why is nobody doing it then? Why, why did Dick Butkus, when he was a linebacker with Chicago, and I watched him, and then when I watched Mike Singletary, and then when I watched, you know, Michael Jordan defend, and I watched him, everybody, they, they pushed and they opened. Okay. Well, a couple things have to happen. The reason you would use a crossover, or a, I, I call it a lateral run, is because I'm trying to move somewhere, right? So if I'm going to my right, I'm trying to take my center of mass, or we could just say my belly button, and I'm trying to move it. I'm trying to translate it in that direction, okay? So if you took my body, and you looked at me in an athletic stance, and you cut me right down the middle, I've got an even right, and I've got an even left. Well, if, you, if I were just to ask you, would you rather me push myself this way or try to pull myself? Well, the obvious answer is push because I'm set up, I'm designed to push as where if I try to pull, that means I'm using adductor because my feet would be in the starting stance were perpendicular to the direction we're probably going to go. So now if the weight of my foot is on the ball of the foot, right? I don't want the weight on my heels because then I'm unathletic. I'm not loaded. Even though my heels might be touching, I, my shin is pushed forward, which gives me most of the weight towards the ball of the foot, probably towards the great toe, right? Okay, so now visualize this. If I use a crossover and I pull with that front foot, let's say I have a size 10 foot. Well, the pivot point of the fulcrum at the ankle, I'm actually gonna start, my heel is gonna start to migrate back towards my center line. Because there's that rotation. Can you visualize that? So, like, if this is my foot and the pressure's here, the pencil, as I start pulling, well, the heel starts coming in as I'm doing it because the pressure is on the bowl of the foot. So, we get that, right? So, now I've got all these torque forces that are, are not effective to help me move quickly. As where if I just push up the back foot and I turn and I open the front foot, now I immediately recruit glute, hamstring. Mm -hmm. gastroc stabilization foot and now i can push off and i can gain greater distance and i immediately get into a gait cycle yes. of opening the front hip see what i'm saying the front hip as where if the front hip stays closed and i pull i block the pathway for my back leg to travel through yeah. and so then when we look at action reaction forces we're like well yeah they just screwed up all my action reaction forces so i'm compensating so there's more to it but i i could go on for a whole podcast on just that but so that's kind of what i look at when i do it but if an athlete does it because maybe their foot got stuck or their balance was like that's cool but typically they won't do it because it doesn't fall into that fight or flight escape or attack yeah. uh, method that the central nervous system drives I don't teach it anymore either. And I, the reason for that, I'm glad you covered this because it always felt so forced and it didn't fall into that like natural self-organizational strategy that we were talking about. It just, it's not something that it's like me trying to have the, the athlete's body do something that's very, like very mechanical and technical that it doesn't really want to do. So I just yeah. got away from it and it's, I've gotten better results because of that. So that's, yeah. that's awesome. Uh, last question I had for you is something again, um, I'm just kind of throwing stuff at you, but it's things I've been thinking about. So in sports, we don't know, like think about shuffling, right? There's a lot of lateral shuffling, push to base stuff like that, that uh, coaches love to, to go over. And for basketball athlete, I totally get it. But in a lot of sports, 
really like what is the purpose of that shuffle it's to reposition them into a into like a linear speed right it's, it's for them to like they do one shuffle one side step one push to base and then they're going in most cases so why are we putting so much emphasis on longer duration um like longer duration shuffles you know what i mean like what what is the what is the purpose behind that when in sport it's really just like a shuffle go that's really like what you see a lot of the times what are your thoughts on that yeah yeah great question so i guess it would come back to um, making physiological changes in the body because if i do let's say connor i do five meters of shuffling okay so five meters i don't know i could probably get two and a half good pushes, you know, one, two and a half and I'm probably there or pretty close to it. So if we train at least two to three shuffles in it, we were working on strengthening the hip, getting better at the skill of the lateral gait cycle. Um, but I'm gonna tell you, I am with you. Where I go, my hair goes on fire is when I see basketball coaches have kids go from baseline to baseline. So if it's a pro court you're talking 92 feet if it's a high school 84 feet or 87 depending on what the court is yeah. go shuffle all the way up shuffle all the way back and i'm like you talk about a groin injury waiting to happen or an adductor strain that's a tough thing to do and we never even in basketball where we shuffle a lot you shuffle a couple of times, then you you cross over and then i shuffle the other way so it's a lot of times it's one and a half to two shuffles and then we or we go into the lateral run so i think you train it I guess for the same reasons you would do repeats and sprinting uh, or, or uh, hill runs, hill acceleration runs to build a quality. Uh, so we can use it for that purpose and we can build physiological, we can build strength. Maybe, maybe like I opened up with a question or an answer to you, I might say, hey, I'm gonna make you cut off your right leg for multiple reps just because I'm trying to build something there. That would be probably the best answer I could give is it, it helps us just get better at that skill, even though we might only use that skill for like a half a second mm -hmm. and then we're gone, we're running or we're jumping or doing something else. So yeah, that's kind of why I would do it. Yeah, it, it gets overkill sometimes. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I appreciate you clearing that up. Uh, well, Lee, thank you, man. I appreciate you coming on. Do, is there anything you have coming out soon? Anything you're working on? Any projects? Um, just, just being busy, obviously a lot of stuff going on. I am working on a uh, project that I, I, I don't want to say a lot about right now, but it's in the tennis world. Uh, I'm a big, huge tennis fan and it's, it's something I'm working on. I'm trying to figure it out. So I don't want to say anything on because it depends on where it goes, but it's something that I'm looking forward to. But uh, yeah, no, I appreciate you, you inviting me on. This was a lot of fun. I love the, I just love open talk. I think that's the, the most fun. So that was great. Great questions. Thank you. I appreciate it, man. All right. Thanks, Kyle.